Well, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you uh, this morning. And if you're online, uh, good to see you there, too. We, we see you on the other end of that camera, and we're so glad that you've joined us as well. Uh, friends, would you turn with me, please, to the book of First Peter? Uh, we're going to be in First uh, Peter again, this time chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. I, I confess uh, we had a couple of basketball games with the kids this week, so we'll see how my voice holds up. Not that I was yelling or anything like that uh, the last couple days, but I had a good time and excited for uh, lots of things, including just the fun of watching a high school basketball game. So uh, friends, uh, when, when my kids were in elementary school, I had the privilege of being a coach. I got to coach my boys playing football. If you know anything about me, you know that, that I really enjoy football, and uh, I hope it's evident I love my kids. And so when those two things got to match up together, I was in, it was a good time, and it, 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 I really enjoyed coaching. Now, one of the things I enjoyed coaching uh, or about coaching was also the relationships that I got to form with other dads, other coaches on our team. And, and I, that was really cool. And so one afternoon when the coaches said, hey, we're going to have a coaches meeting. You want to join us? I said, well, well, sure. I'm a coach. And yeah, of course, I'd like to, to join you for the coaches meeting. So they, they gave me the address to the place and I, I followed my GPS and I pulled up in the parking lot and I realized this isn't the place I would have chosen for a coach's meeting, <laughs> okay? It was, it was kind of outside of, of my norm, and it was a place called the Three Lions Pub in West Fargo. Now, it was the afternoon, and praise God, uh, it, it, there wasn't that much thing you know, going on that was crazy in there that I had to worry about, but, but for these guys, what I learned is that a coach's meeting was really a, a chance to throw back a few tall ones and hang out, all right? So, so that's what I discovered going to this uh, coach's meeting. Now, I'm not here to give a theology of alcohol <laughs> this morning, okay? Uh, we actually touched on that in the verse that I just read, by no intention of mine. But, but Ephesians 5, we talked about that a couple years ago. But I will say this. I will say that this was territory with which I didn't have much experience, okay? And I remember feeling caught in the tension of the moment. Kind of like I was between two worlds. Here I was, a pastor, uh, uh, hanging out with a bunch of guys in a bar, and uh, we were trying to do what we were, were doing. And it, it created some conflict for me. Have you ever been there? <laughs> you ever felt tension with the things going on around you and how that brings into conflict your, your, your faith? I think it happens all the time in varying ways, whether it's a conversation in the break room that slips into gossip, or, or, or whether we're a student and, and we're sitting in class and our teacher or our professor uh, claims something that we know contradicts our, our faith, uh, whether we're with our friends and the social activities uh, start to compromise our ethics, or at least the ethics that we're convinced are, are true and right, or whether we're a Vikings fan trying to maintain our integrity in central Wisconsin, right? <laughs> We often end up in situations that bring our faith into tension. And that can be uncomfortable. That, that really can. We don't like that. And I, I think we typically respond in one of two ways. At least our natural response happens in one of two ways. See, some of us work really hard to control the issue, to avoid the tension. We, we sequester. We isolate. We fabricate, perhaps, a bunch of rules that, that keep us from having to deal with the tension. We don't want to do that. And of course, that's one way to do it, isn't it? But others of us say, well, it's too hard. It's too messy. And so rather than isolate, we capitulate. <laughs> we sort of give in to the tension and we let go of our convictions in favor of what's easy. Now, what if I told you that there was a good third option? <laughs> what if I told you that there was actually a third option, a, a better way, perhaps, for navigating the land in between? What if I told you that the tension of the in-between 
is in many ways right where God would desire us to be. (laughs) In fact, what if I told you that Jesus prayed for that exact same thing? That he prayed for his disciples before he died and rose again and ascended into heaven. He prayed that his disciples would remain actually right smack in the middle of that tension. (laughs) How'd you feel about that? I want to bring you to Jesus' words in John chapter 17, uh, verses 14 to 18, where Jesus is praying for his disciples. And listen to how he prays here. I love this. This is fascinating. He prays, Father, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. (laughs) In other words, Jesus is is praying here uh, in in a way that I I think uh, reflects this statement. We often say this in, in church circles, be in the world, but not of the world, right? Be in the world, but not of it. Right out of John chapter 17. And friends, today, I want us to to come to a passage in 1 Peter that instructs us on how to do just that. What does it look like to stand firm in the land between our convictions and our increasingly secularized environment? Do we agree that that causes tension for us as Christians? I think so, right? How do we do that? How do we navigate that? And and for that, we go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, okay? Two verses this morning, all right? Um, sermon will be over in five minutes. <laughs> Just kidding, I won't. All right. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen. Now, if you've been around Cornerstone for the last few months, you'll remember that Peter, in this book, in this letter, is speaking to the elect exiles of the dispersion, okay? He's speaking to those Christians who've been scattered throughout what is now modern Turkey uh, at the the request, at the behest of uh, Emperor Claudius. They've been sent out to the far reaches and sort of cast out of Roman society. And the bulk of his content so far has been in the indicative to these people. It's indicated the status of these people. It's demonstrated to them, look, though you are social outcasts according to Roman culture, you're not outcasts according to God. In fact, quite the contrary. You have an identity, a a, a firm calling as the elect exiles of the dispersion. And so even in your time of suffering, in your time of exile, Peter's been reminding them, hey, this is who you are. And be who you are, not where you are. Remember that? So that's why it makes sense when Peter in verse 11 here addresses the people as the beloved. Isn't that a great term? The Greek, the Greek word there is agapetos, or, or in, in the plural agapetoi. Okay? These are the people of God. And Peter says, you're the beloved, you're the elect, you're the people of God. I mean, just last week, he called them the chosen race. Remember that? The royal priesthood, the holy nation, that, that people belonging to God. Friends, that was the status of these people cast out under the fringes of Roman society. And guess what? It's yours and my status as well. We're the beloved. (laughs) We can address each other as that. Beloved, here we go. 
One of our good friends, uh, who many of us know, says that often. But now today, after this brief reminder of our status as the beloved, uh, we we come uh, to a, a new reality. Peter now moves past the indicatives into a series of what we call imperatives, okay? Into a series of commands that are going to outline our conversation for the next several weeks. And, and so as the beloved, this is what it looks like to live as the elect exiles of, of, of the dispersion, as those chosen by God to live the mission of God in what has become a hostile environment, to, to live in the land between. And so for today, Peter's going to give us two imperatives, two things uh, that we're to do, two ways in which we're to respond. One of them is negative, okay, and one of them is positive, all right? Sometimes there are things we're, we're, we ought not do as Christians, and other times there are things that we ought to do. Peter gives us both. All right, first the negative, all right? So look back in your Bibles, verse 11. I'm going to read this one more time. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, notice how Peter reiterates some of his main themes in the letter. He calls them uh, sojourners and strangers. He's, He's saying, look, as a people temporarily displaced, as a people temporarily disenfranchised, I want you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And it's interesting here, this, this idea of the passions of the flesh, this, this phrase comes from uh, the idea of that which is worldly. The, the passions of the flesh reference that which is of the world, that which is opposed to God. To, to give in to the passions of the flesh is to maintain a preoccupation with the world, with what the world offers, its value system, its ethics, its definitions of success, of what it means to be accepted and, and significant and fulfilled. And so Peter says... Beloved, I want you to resist that. Be careful of that. I want you to resist worldly passions. Don't buy into what the world is trying to sell you. In church, isn't it true that the world is constantly vying for our attention? In so many ways. In so many ways. If you just buy what I'm selling, you're going to be happy. If, if you just have enough material things, you're going to be fulfilled. If you just buy the right house, have the right job, maintain the right status in your community, if you have the right relationships, enough success, look, you're going to be happy. That's what you should pursue. And pretty soon, if we're not careful, our, our hobbies can overwhelm our holiness, can't they? Pretty soon, our our vices can overtake our virtue. And, and church, sure, we may find satisfaction for a time, But ironically, the more worldly endeavors that we achieve, the more success that we find, the the more of the American dream, perhaps, that we realize, the more pleasures that we buy, often the emptier we feel. And and, and, uh, theologian and philosopher James K.A. Smith speaks to this pursuit of worldly passions in a book called On the Road with Augustine. And he says this, and I just find it so helpful. He says, Where we rest, and he talks about rest as that which we pursue, where we rest our attention, our minds, our affections, where we rest is a matter of what and how we love. Where we rest is is a matter of what and how we love. Our restlessness, our lack of rest, is a reflection of what we try to enjoy as an end in itself, (laughs) what we look to as a place to land. Our restlessness is a product of pursuing something that doesn't fulfill. Okay, you with me on that? Our restlessness is a product of looking for peace in the wrong places. Then he says this. He says, the heart's hunger is infinite. (laughs) 
Friends, within us, we long for the divine. We long for the infinite. We long for the things of God. The heart's hunger, the true hunger of the heart is infinite, which is why it will ultimately be disappointed with anything that is merely finite, anything that's temporal, anything that's not of God. He says humans are those strange creatures who can never be fully satisfied by anything created, though that never stops us from trying. (laughs) Friends, our dogs, they get satisfied with lots of good things, like biscuits and scratches and all those things. That's, that, uh, dogs can be satisfied with the things of the world, but guess what? <laughs> we need more than that. We need uh, the divine. We need God. And the problem is that we, we tend to give the world too much credit, don't we? we? We tend to give the world too much credit. We assume that if we just keep walking long enough, if we just keep trying hard enough, we're going to find a sustainable level of satisfaction that we can live with for the rest of our lives. We, we make an idol out of the pursuit of happiness, out of the journey that we think we're on to find what's good. And Smith says, look, the irony is that we experience frustration and disappointment when we try to make a, the road, the journey towards the those things we think we need, when we try to make the road a home rather than realize it's leading us home, when we try to tell ourselves the road is life, but then we foist infinite expectations on the finite. We hoist God-sized expectations on that which was created, not on the creator. Yeah? Say yeah, would you? Yeah, good. We're, that's, that's acceptable, by the way. If you want to say amen, that's fine, but yeah works really well for me too, Okay. Right. <laughs> then we voiced infinite expectations on the finite, but the finite, the finite, the here and now, is given as a gift to help us to get elsewhere, to help make us realize we need something better. <laughs> we need God. And that longing we feel, that dissatisfaction, even after what we find we think we need, is there. And, and I would call it a holy discontent. It reminds us that we have attained that which we think we needed. We actually need something more. And it actually reminds us of what we really need. Friends, remember, we're not home yet. <laughs> we're sojourners. We're exiles. We live like the, the, the elect exiles of the dispersion. We live in the diaspora. <laughs> we live between the here and the, the then. We live between the now and the not yet. And that means we'll not be in exile forever. Praise God. And any road, any passion, any pursuit that distracts us from the will of God in this life ultimately ends in disappointment. We cannot, we, we dare not, we must not have infinite expectation for that which is finite. That, that friends, is idolatry. You know, if my goal is that the Vikings make me happy, I mean, it's not going to happen, is it? But here's, I got something for you. I got something. I got it. Neither will the Packers. <laughs> All right? They might make you happy in a more temporal sense more often, <laughs> but they'll disappoint too. All right? But, but friends, we, we do that. Not just to football teams, right? But we do that to our spouses. We place the infinite expectations on that which is finite. We do that to our jobs. We do that to our city. We do that to the people around us. We keep walking around looking for happiness while failing to realize this world is not our forever home. This is not the end of the story, that which is in front of us in the here and now. We're sojourners. We're exiles. 
Does anybody agree with me on this, that the world is broken? Amen. Amen. Yeah, thank you. You agreed with the last thing, but how about this? <laughs> Do you agree with that the world is broken? Yeah. You can say yeah again, remember? Yeah, okay. <laughs> the world is broken, friends. And if the world is broken, then, and, and if we all agree to that, then why do we keep expecting a broken world to fix our problems? Why do we expect that which is broken to fix our personal brokenness? We keep going to the world. We keep going to a broken system to fix our broken lives. Why do we do that? Friends, the good news is there, that there is a God and a coming kingdom that is not and that will not be broken. Remember, the world is not your forever home. It's temporary. We're but exiles. We're but sojourners in a foreign land. And God is calling us home. Jesus is coming. And when our passions and our pursuits and our desires are oriented to the world, it's no wonder that we keep bumping our heads against the wall, isn't it? And church, I, I want to be real with you here this morning. I always want to be real with you. I, I could stand up here and I could point out all the ways that I see other people pursuing worldly values, whether it's the Packers or whether it's materialism or whatever it is. And it happens and they are and that, that happens, church. But, but I need to start with myself. And, and I confess, I've been wrestling with this this week. I, I alluded to it in the shout-out uh, on Thursday. I wrestle with the things that I can't control. And man, there's been a lot lately. There's been a lot of stuff that I want to control, but I just can't. And I try, and when I try, I get frustrated. And see, sometimes I'm prone to let the things that are occurring around me dictate and dominate my sense of safety and my sense of happiness. And when that happens, I'm letting the things that I desire but can't attain have far too much influence. I'm wrestling with that, church. And see, Peter says that the passions of the flesh, the, the things of the world, they wage war against our souls. They, they wage war against that part of us which is cut for eternity. And so I need to be careful. And I'm here to tell you from God's word, so, so do you. We, we together need to check our passions against the word of God. Because the passions of the world subvert your soul. They subvert our souls if we let them. What does Peter say? Verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's a war going on and our souls are at stake. Friends, if Satan has already lost you to the family of God, if, if you've already become born again as a believer in Jesus Christ, then you know what his strategy is? He's going to try to distract you from your identity in Christ. He's going to try to distract you and to tell you, look, you don't have any skin in this game. Why don't you just check out? You're, you're fine now with God. Just, just be that. But, but, but there's nothing more for you. He wants you to think and to act as if nothing's really changed. Friends, we're at war in a spiritual reality where Satan is at work against what God is doing. And friends, when we say no to the passions of the world, and its definitions of success and identity and pleasure, in favor of that which God supplies, and in favor of that which, in favor of living according to our new identity in Christ, then we resist that which subverts our souls in favor of that which fills them. <laughs> I love what the great missionary Jim Elliott said He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's not foolish. 
That's wise, church. Resist worldly passions, friends. <laughs> the world is not your forever home. And worldly passions subvert your soul. Be aware. Now, that's the negative, okay? That's what we're not to do. That's what we're to resist. But I mentioned before, there's also a positive. And so look again at verse 12, would you? Look at this. Peter writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your God on the day of visitation. Remember, church, Jesus said, Be in the world, but not... Right, amen. Be in the world, but not of the world. And so as those in the world, we're not dismissive of the world. We don't separate from the world. Instead, we act Christ-like in the world. And listen, Peter is writing to a people who are increasingly suspect to the world around them. Okay, Christians were seen as devious, as ill-natured, as evil even, as he alludes to in this verse. I mean, there's this guy, Suetonius, who documented Christians as a mischievous superstition. This is what they were a part of. Others called them dangerous. A guy named Tacitus wrote that Christians were a race uh, uh, detested for their evil practices. They're calling Christians this in first century Rome. I mean, talk about ironic, right? Christians would even be accused of incest because of their emphasis on the family. They'd be accused of cannibalism because of their emphasis on the Lord's Supper. Nero would blame Christians for the fire in Rome that caused so much havoc, and he'd, he'd torture them and murder them because of it, because of his hatred. See, Peter's writing in an intense time. He's writing in a spiritual climate that surrounds the people to whom he, he wrote. And so in essence, he's telling them, look, many of them already hate you. They've already called you evildoers. And if they call you evildoers because of your commitment to the gospel, because of your commitment to the word of God, then, then so be it. But don't give them any reason to call you evil well, where you don't have to. Don't give them any extra reason to call you evil because you're giving in to the passions of your flesh. You know, one of our values here at Cornerstone, we, we, we want to love God, we want to grow people, we want to serve our city, church. And then we want to reach the world. We want to serve our city around here. And why do we want to do that? We want to do it out of love and respect for the people uh, with whom God has placed us. And as long as serving our city doesn't violate our biblical conscience, we're going to do it as best we can at every opportunity, at every availability. Church, some in our city may think our stance on certain theological issues makes us evil. That, that may be the reality. And if that's the case, then so be it. But hear me on this. We dare not give them reason. We dare not give them legitimate reason to call us evil. We dare not give them reason to corroborate their story by giving in to the passions of our flesh, by, by acting dishonorably towards our neighbors. Amen? Amen. See, if we've got right doctrine but foul practice, we don't serve the kingdom of God. And on the flip side, we need to recognize that that. The world's sense of morality, though it has become skewed from our own, not everything the world values is contrary to our faith. Amen to that? Not everything the world values is contrary to what we value. And so where we have shared values, we got to pursue them. I think that's what Peter's getting at here. We must pursue shared values. Does our city care about the poor? Say yes. At least not everybody, but yeah, generally our city does, right? So should we. 
Jesus said, whatever you've done unto the least of these, you've done to me. Does our city care about education and our kids? Clearly, the Bible teaches that kids are important. Jesus said, suffer the children to come unto me. In Deuteronomy, it talks about training up our kids in the way of the Lord. We ought to care about the education of our kids. And church, with that, we have a couple of goals in mind. And Peter reflects that here first in in verse 12. He says, the goal of, of, let me just read it, uh, the, the goal of keeping your conduct honorable among the Gentiles is first, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Now, does that rub anybody a, a little bit? Th- that, that our goal might be so that people see what we do? <laughs> it does for me. And I go back to Matthew 6 in our, from our study in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, look, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving, your generosity, your good things might be done in secret. And, and if we're not careful, we might think that Peter's somehow contradicting Jesus here. I don't think that's the case. See, uh, uh, Peter isn't contradicting Jesus, but here's the reality. When we consistently pursue honorable things, when we consistently act in honorable ways among the Gentiles, and by the way, Gentiles is just another reference to the world. I'm convinced Peter doesn't mean it literally here. He means it's a reference to the world. When we consistently act honorably, people notice, don't they? When we live a consistently uh, honorable life, a consistently ethical life, the world is going to notice. The world sees. We, we, don't, we don't have to take out ads. We don't need to brag. We don't need to put it on Facebook. But people see, church. And it's interesting. In, in first century Roman culture, uh, sexual, sexual immorality was a big deal. Okay? It was a big deal, but it was generally thought, at least among the educated in Rome, that, that, that giving in to one's lower passions, if you will, was dishonorable. And so when Christians chose to make sexuality something that was reserved in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, it was generally seen as, as honorable. Those are shared values there. And we could go on down the list. Now, ultimately, it was the honorability of Christians that won over the Roman culture and, and actually led to revolution. Constantine came to power, and eventually Rome became a Christian nation. It's crazy. There's this whole other you know, time together. But friends, we, we must not be of the world. We must resist worldly passion. But that doesn't mean we ought not pursue shared values. Church, I love how Cornerstone serves our city. I love how Cornerstone does that, whether it's, whether it's in, in volunteering over at Lincoln Elementary, whether it's things like Deliver Hope that, that happened this Christmas, whether it's uh, just the varying soup and socks. We, we, all, our people give to all kinds of things and serve our city in all kinds of ways, and I, I just love that. In church, when we do that, Peter says that the result is that the world glorifies God on the day of visitation. There, there are two goals here as reflected in verse 12. First is that the world sees, and then that the world glorifies God. That God is glorified. Churches, unbelievers see Christians living out their faith as they see Christians abstaining from the flesh with honorable conduct. That's attractive. That's attractive. And, and many turn from their passions of their flesh. And, and, and they realize that this broken world doesn't fix their personal brokenness. And, and what they see from authentic Christianity, from those living out their faith in an honorable way, they see a better way. <laughs> they see a solution. And it's not a worldly one. It's a heavenly one. And often they're ready to say yes to Jesus. Praise God. That happens. Now for others when they encounter Christians who are living out their faith with authenticity, with honorability, 
They may not turn in, turn in faith to Jesus. But there, there'll come a day when what they've seen will bring them to account. And they'll stand before God and they, and they won't be able to deny who He is anymore. They won't be able to deny, deny the gospel. And on that day of visitation, as Peter references here, they'll bow the knee to the God of the universe. Friends, one of the most motivating and, and sobering passages in, in all of the New Testament to me is in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. Paul says this, he says, For we, meaning the church, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among who? Among those who are being saved on the one hand and on, among those who are perishing. To one, we're the fragrance of life. But to the other, we're a fragrance from life to life. We're the fragrance of death, is what that means. You know, back to the Three Lions pub. <laughs> As I sat there, uh, sipping my Sprite, it was fascinating. At one point, the conversation turned, um, and the, the guys started talking about the challenges that kids face these days. And isn't it kind of ironic that every generation talks about the kids these days, right? So they're talking about the kids these days and how hard it is. And the reality is, is yeah, it's hard. And one of them turns to me and he says, aren't you a priest? <laughs> I said, well, something like that. <laughs> he said, you know, we, we, want you to, we want you to start talking to our kids. We want you, in fact, we want you to pray for our kids. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. But pr pretty soon I got a lump in my throat. And I thought, okay, is this like a moment that I'm supposed to step into here? You know, you get nervous. And, and, and I, I thought, well... You know, I think maybe this is. And, and so uh, I, I, I think I said a little prayer and, and, and just said, guys, do you want to know what I believe? I've never really shared this with you, but can I just, if you want me to pray for the kids, I, I'd feel better if you knew where I was coming from. And they, they all said, oh, yeah, yeah that's, that's good. And, and so, so we did. And I just got to right there in the bar and, you know, you know, doing what they were doing, got to share the gospel. And I can't tell you that anybody uh, prayed to receive Christ there in that moment. I've kept in touch with a couple of those guys, and I, I can tell you I'm convinced that there's some spiritual things going on, and I, I don't know where they stand these days. But it, it, it took sort of settling into that tension for me. I, I was nervous. I was out of place, okay? I didn't quite know what the best way to respond sitting at that table with those guys was. But, but friends, I knew that I wanted to be in the world, but not of the world. And here's the thing, church. I... I hesitate to share stories like that with you. I really do. Because for me, to do something like that, it's, it's a bit predictable, right? You're a pastor, Andy. Don't we pay you to do that kind of a thing, right? And at one level, yeah, you kind of do. I, I ought to do that. But you know what I get fired up about? I get fired up about people around here who are relentless in, in meeting folks who don't yet know Jesus and who say, I, I want to come alongside you. We have a guy in our ministry that does that all the time. I want to come alongside you and let's read the Bible together and let's, and let's grow together. Let me help you. I get fired up about that. Church, I get fired up about another person who feels like it's their responsibility to share the gospel with every one of their employees at their work. I get fired up about the person who's a medical professional who, who tells me, you know what, I've been wrestling with this, I've been praying about this, how to share the gospel more overtly, more, more often with my patients. I want to do that, and I think God's calling me to that. I get fired up about the woman in our congregation who's willing to sit down with another woman who's wrestling with her faith and wants to know, do I really believe this? And she's willing to open the scripture and help 
help this person answer gospel questions. I get fired up about students who embrace another student who's just had an encounter with God and he shows up to youth group and all of a sudden he's loved by people and he starts growing and being exposed to things he's never seen or heard before and he starts learning what it's like to follow Jesus and to be loved by him and to walk with him. And friends, I I get it. Some, Some of your experiences wouldn't allow you to hang out at a bar for a coach's meeting, okay? So, so let's not parse the, the, the details here. For some of you, you grew up in contexts where, where alcoholism was in your family or it's been a struggle for you, and, and you just that just wouldn't work. The dynamics in, the play, in play wouldn't allow that. And to abstain from the passions of the flesh I mean you just don't go in there. When you drive up to the parking lot and you see the Three Lions pub, nope, can't do that. Friends, I want to affirm you if that's you. We, we must not compromise our spiritual convictions. But in that, we must also not compromise our our God-given biblical mission. We must be in the world, but not of it. Amen? How great an opportunity we have in the land between as we embrace the tension of, of living in a world constantly pulling at our flesh, all the while having our hearts set on God's kingdom. We do not look for the finite to do what only the infinite can do. Scott McKnight says, The Christian's the one who's countercultural because he or she is out of step with trends and passions in the culture. It's not this way because we're trying to be odd, although my kids might disagree with that, right? It's not this way because we're trying to be odd. We're odd because we're trying to be godly. Again, countercultural living is not the goal of the Christian. We don't just try to be odd for odd's sake. Rather, countercultural living is the result of following Jesus. Friends, when Christians live in the land between, the world sees. They notice. Yeah, we're odd. But when we're odd for the right reasons, God is glorified. And potentially, their lives are changed. What if we, in increasing measure, we here at Cornerstone, we as the church community in Marshfield and and in our surrounding areas, what if we became known in increasing measure as a people who are relentlessly committed to resisting worldly passions and at the same time are relentlessly committed to pursuing shared values with the world? Are you into that? Are you willing? How the world would be changed, I'm convinced. (laughs) How God would be glorified. Let's pray to that end. Lord, thank you for this challenging text. Thank you for how your spirit pokes us and prods us and leads us in all kinds of ways, primarily through your word. Often as we gather together in community, as we avail ourselves to you in prayer and personal worship. God, thank you that your word is living and active. And thank you that you give us such beautiful instruction for what it looks like to live in the land between, to live in the tension of being passionate for following the things that you have outlined for us in your word. And at the same time, being passionate that you would use us in the lives who have not yet heard who have not yet received grace, who have not yet found that the the, the finite that keeps disappointing them can be replaced by the infinite. Lord, may we be a people that constantly 
goes about glorifying you. And when we fail, may we be quick to confess. And may we be quick to be forgiven. And may we be, may we be quick to represent the word of God in who we are and how we think and what we do. God, thank you for your grace in our lives that allows us to represent you in this world. We love you and we trust you in Jesus' name.